Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As you know, on this podcast, we do like to catch up with our industry colleagues and partners to discuss the market, the macro environment, along with thinking when it comes to asset allocation. Uh, joining me here today from the UBS Chief Investment Office, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho. Jason is the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment office. We're excited to welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned for his second appearance with us, Torsten Slock, partner and chief economist with Apollo. So with that, Jason, Torsten, it's great to have us all back together. Plenty to catch up on from our last conversation. So welcome back and thank you for spending some time with our listeners today. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. And thanks, Torsten, for joining us again. So to get started, Torsten, I'm thinking back to your last appearance with us. This is going back to early April of this year. We're speaking now in early November. So a lot, of course, has taken place since then, though at the time we were talking a lot about the state of the U.S. economy. Where do you feel the U.S. economy is today? How would you characterize it? And as we're now looking ahead to 2024, how do you anticipate conditions might evolve from here? Yeah, so uh, thanks so much, uh, Dan. And for having me again. The broad backdrop for where we are is that we are still in a situation where the Fed is trying to slow down inflation. Since we met last time, inflation has continued to gradually move lower. But remember that the Fed's target is that inflation should be 2%. And if you look at core CPI today, it's 4.1. And core PCE is 3.7. So in round numbers, inflation is still around 4 it is falling, it is coming down, and it's our expectation, it's the consensus expectations, it's the Fed expectation that inflation will continue to move lower. But as Jay Powell has been talking about, including more recently, we are just not there yet. So that's why the backdrop for where the economy is, is that the Fed is still in the process of slowing down the economy with the goal of slowing down inflation. And they are succeeding with delinquency rates are going up on credit cards and auto loans. We're seeing the consumer begin to slow down. We're also seeing default rates going up on high yield and loans. So corporates are also slowing down. We're also seeing loan growth in the banking sector begin to slow down. So taken together, we are seeing an economy that's gradually moving towards getting inflation to 2%, but we are not quite there yet. And we still have some downside risks as the Fed continues its campaign of tightening monetary policy and slowing the economy down. Thank you, Torsten, for that overview. Of course, a lot there we can dive a bit deeper into as the conversation today progresses, including, of course, thoughts on the Fed monetary policy. Though, Jason, do want to get your thoughts from the chief investment office's perspective as to where the economy stands today and how my conditions evolve as we make our way into 2024, the first quarter. Well, I would agree with everything that, that Torsten said, that uh, inflation is trending in the right direction. It's not there yet. The Fed has more work to do. Um, whether that means they actually have to do anything or just hold tight, that's that's a you know, point of discussion we can get into. Um, and this has kind of happened in the, in the backdrop where you know, growth has, I think, been proven far more resilient than I think anyone would have thought back, you know, certainly at the start of the year, even like you know, roughly six months ago. And as we start to get you know some of the data for November after what was kind of a red hot summer in terms of growth. You know, there's signs of, of moderation, but it's, I'd say it's, you know, cooling from a pretty hot level to something that is, you know, still, you know, relatively, you know, solid. Now, the trend is, is likely to go lower this quarter or next quarter. I think then the question is, is whether this is a, 
you know, from my, on the path forward to the line, landing kind of analogy that we often use, is this a you know big crater? Is it a pothole or is it a kind of small <laughs> speed bump? And and right now it looks like you know pothole to speed bump, but uh, you know I think that it's you know it's a little early to see just how much the big rise in rates we've seen over the past couple of months, how much that might actually slow the economy. And this is kind of the reason why the Fed didn't um, you know hike yesterday and maybe done overall. So that's kind of what, you know what I think that we're kind of thinking you know but I, I want to go back to you towards things when we did this our last podcast together it was I believe kind of roughly early April it was weeks after Silicon Valley Bank had gone under the view was the banking system is going to be under stress credit's going to contract quite a bit this is going to be you know really slow the economy and I think if you surveyed people back then the assumption still would have been well we'll have a recession starting probably by the summer or the fall <laughs> instead we get a 4.9% GDP growth in, in the third quarter, which was on no one's bingo card. When you look at it, uh, like, I guess, what would you point to or what's going to be surprising to you of like how the economy has been able to be this resilient? Like what are the, like, you know, whether it's the consumer or policy that's been maybe more supportive than assumed, what do you think has kind of led to this upside surprise? Yeah, I think what's, and that's a very good, and very, and actually the most important question for markets at the moment. And I think this is exactly, identifying this is absolutely critical. I do think that the reason why the economy continues to be so resilient is that consumers still have plenty of savings left after the pandemic. During the pandemic, we were all sitting at home, and what was so unusual about that episode compared to other recessions is that normally when you have a recession going back to 2008, going back to 2001, going back to 1990, those recessions were all characterized by households this saving meaning spending money, or publicly speaking, spending money that they didn't have. That was very different during the pandemic. We were sitting at home, not flying on airplanes, not eating at restaurants, not staying in hotels, not going to Taylor Swift concerts, not going to sporting events. And because of that, savings went up significantly during the pandemic period. And it has taken quite some time to run down those savings. In particular, if you also include stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, sidecap tax credits, PVP loans. And if you use the San Francisco Fed methodology, you come to the conclusion that even today we still have about four, five hundred billion dollars left in the household sector that is being burned through or run down by the household sector. So I think that the main reason why people are out there spending still, despite interest rates having gone up so much, is that people still and households, in particular higher income households, still have significant amount of savings left that they are running down. The run rate is roughly around $80 billion every single month, so we still have another three to six months ahead of us. But ultimately, we should be seeing a run out of savings on the consumer side. And on adding to that, if we restart student loan payments on the 1st of October, the downside risks as we get into 2024 continue to be quite material. But I think that the excess savings still being out there is still playing a critical role in why the economy has continued to be so resilient. You mentioned uh, in your opening comment about, you know, like there's rising delinquency rates to pay back various types of loans, whether it's credit cards, auto loans, things of that sort. Uh, there's definitely, you know, there's some investors or some consumers that are, are definitely feeling the squeeze from, from higher rates, both at the short and the, and the long end. Now, when, I, when we look at the data, it is, I mean, it's indisputable that those levels are rising, but in a lot of cases they're rising from incredibly low levels in 20, like 2020 and 2021. So when you zoom out, it's like, okay, well, now we're maybe back in some cases to 2019 levels, which is still, you know, long run average, maybe, you know, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but not, not typical end of late cycle 
you know, kind of dynamics, like not like 2007 levels. But at the same time, like things are rising, and like the concern is that they just keep rising very rapidly. When you look at a variety of different credit metrics, and I see your sort of you know your commentary on a regular basis, which parts of kind of the, the consumer borrowing do you think is you know the most vulnerable that gives you the most pause? You know, and, and, and whether it is you know, auto loans, credit card loans on the corporate side, because there's some things that are like more flashing red hue versus other kind of yellow, but not so bad. Yeah, no, this is a very important question because it is correct that there are some important nuances in where are we seeing, in particular for the consumer delinquency rates going up, and for corporates, where we're seeing default rates going up. If we look at delinquency rates for younger households, meaning people in their 20s and their 30s, they are seeing delinquency rates on credit cards going up at a fairly rapid pace. Likewise, they're also seeing delinquency rates on auto loans going up at a rapid pace. In fact, if you look at delinquency rates for auto loans for people in their 30s, they are now higher than they were in 2020, and they are also higher and approaching levels than when we entered the recession in 2007 and 8. So that's another way of saying that it is quite worrying that the liquidity rates are already going up even before the labor market has softened. Remember in 2008, the unemployment rate went up to 10%, and it makes sense that when people lose their jobs, that's when they begin to fall behind on their payments. The reason why people are falling behind on their payments today is not because people lost their jobs, but it's actually simply because interest rates went up. And you see the same picture on the corporate side. You're seeing default rates for high yield go up, default rates for loan go up. And as you're saying, Jason, it's true that it is admittedly from low levels. But what, in my view, is very important in this discussion is that this is not just the normalization. This is actually manufactured by the Fed. It is engineered by the Fed once companies to go bankrupt. The Fed wants to slow down the labor market. The Fed is trying to make it more difficult to get financing. So with that backdrop, I think that the way we should be looking at these moves higher in default rates for corporates, in delinquency rates for consumers, is that if the Fed is now going, according to the Fed Fund Futures market, to keep interest rates at these levels for probably another 9, 12 months, well, then we should probably continue to see these trends higher in delinquency rates and in default rates. And therefore, we should stay away as investors from the highly levered companies uh, because they are more vulnerable when interest rates go up, meaning that reaching down to triple C in the low end of the capital structure brings more risk if the Fed raises rates because those companies are characterized by having much more debt, lower coverage ratios, and weaker cash flows. So that's why the short summary of the answer to your question is, yes, I do agree that we're starting from a low level, but the problem is that this whole slowdown in the economy is because the Fed wants to slow the economy down, and they are succeeding because of those increases in the liquidity rates and default rates, and therefore ultimately would also succeed with getting the slowdown to get inflation to slow down. Well, I hope you'd also agree that if the liquidity rates are going up because people spent a lot of money to see Taylor Swift, that's a justifiable excuse. Um, <laughs> there may be other good reasons to see Taylor Swift than yeah. uh, what interest rates are. <laughs> uh, uh, but there, so, like you know, picking up on the Fed, they you know they, they met yesterday. No rate hike, which was widely telegraphed and anticipated. You know, no change in their projections just because it, you know, it's not the meeting where they would do that or, or change in dot plot. So the focus is really on Jay Powell's comments in the press conference. And the interpretation I've seen from multiple different people is that, um, you know, instead of a hawkish pause, it came across as maybe slightly dovish. I'd be curious, one, like how you interpreted the comments. It also, like my reading is that, you know, the Fed really would like to be done with hiking rates. They would hope that the tightening of financial conditions recently of with the rates, long-end rates going up, will we'll do the job for them. Uh, 
and they want to be able to kind of step back and like let's just see this how this kind of all you know plays out. Which, if inflation stays sticky, they may have no choice but to hike. But I guess also when like how high do you think the bar is for them to do another hike in December? So how do you how do you interpret the the outcome from yesterday and and as a read to like what they'd want to do or likely to do, you know, in December or or in the new year? I completely agree with everything you're saying. That uh, I do think that they want to end this hiking cycle. It's a very difficult tightrope that they're walking here because on the one hand, they don't want to send the signal that they are done because if they send the signal that they are done, then of course long rates will come down quite significantly and the stock market might begin to go up and therefore financial conditions more broadly might be easing. And if they begin to ease financial conditions when inflation is at four, they run the risk that inflation suddenly starts to go up again. So on the one hand, they don't want to send a signal and say, mission accomplished, we'll take out the champagne bottle, we are done. Because if that's the case, then financial conditions will start to ease right away. On the other hand, if they continue to tighten and they continue to send very hawkish signals, they may run the risk of over-tightening. So that's why I think uh, the employment report that we are getting here and the prints that we're getting both, of course, for retail sales, durable goods, and for CPI inflation, continue to be absolutely critical here in the near term. Because that will keep them monitoring, just like all of us in markets, what's going on and to what degree they have tightened too much or too little. So I still think that they are very carefully looking around at the data. They're hearing a lot of anecdotes from companies. They're hearing a lot of anecdotes about what consumers are doing. And I think that they're coming to the conclusion that let's pause for now and look around at the data and listen to the anecdotes and then try to see where we are when we meet at the meeting in December. Well, if you look at market action today, this is Thursday, uh, November 2nd, you know, equity markets are up one and a half, two percent 2%. The 10-year yield is down about 25 basis points from its high, just a, well, not its high, but just from the past few days. So we're getting some easing of financial conditions and how much the, the Fed, you know, the commentary from the Fed yesterday is responsible. That's hard to say, but this is maybe not necessarily what the Fed would want to see, and, and that may cause it to kind of... But so just agree. given that dynamic, and... and Going back also to the point of the Fed ideally wanting to be done at this point in time, if we think then the comments about inflation still far from, or at least trending towards, but not close enough to the target, would you, I guess, do you think that the Fed has done enough and has it done enough to get inflation to a level that we'll never say, you know, 2.75% is acceptable, but I think they'd be, take that and, and call it a day. They'd be happy with that. Uh, and do we need to do the Fed to do more? Do we need to have a recession to get inflation down or, or is the, the, the path to a softest landing with inflation kind of getting to a level the Fed could be accepted with? Do you think that's, yeah. I guess, how wide do you think that is? Or is that, no, like, that, that, you know, that's not, it's not possible to get inflation down without basically causing a recession or having a recession to squeeze that little bit of excess inflation out of the system? Yeah, right. And I, he was asked about that at the press conference yesterday. And I do think that what he was saying is right, that so far, so good. That's how I interpreted what he was saying. We have gotten to this point. He almost said that they were, and almost implied that they were actually a little bit surprised that inflation has come down so much without any, at least up to this point, sharp slowdown in the economy. But he still was quite cautious in terms of whether they can continue to get that. The problem exactly, as you're saying, Jason, is that, well, now we have squeezed inflation from, we peaked at 9% in June uh, last year, and now we are in round numbers down to around four, at least on core inflation. So this was the low-hanging fruit of getting from a high level down to a more 
uh, at least a reasonable level compared to where we were last year. But the problem is that squeezing more inflation out and going from four down to two may turn out to be more costly. And what he was clearly telling us is that, that we may need to keep the door open to the idea that we do need to slow the economy down. So that's another way for him to say that they are probably going to keep rates higher for longer. And higher for longer is the measure and is the important investment recommendation for all of us at the moment. Namely that we don't quite, no one really quite understands exactly that question, how much more rates need to be at these levels. But it's very, very clear that if we begin to see inflation show any sign of not coming down, that then the Fed is going to just continue to even hit harder on the higher for longer theme. So for investors, that, of course, means that front-end rates higher for longer is, of course, attractive to benefit from this period of interest rates in particular the one to three and one to five year segment still staying quite elevated for at least until the middle of next year. Well, the tricky part of this whole dynamic is that the inflation data or the expectations for inflation in the fourth quarter are that it's going to be Medicine high, but it not so much improvement because like some of it is seasonal adjustment factors, which are, you know, you know, can distort the data. There's some one-offs such as things like Medicare insurance resets in October. So that's going to have some knock-on effects. So it's just going to be a little bit noisy. Even if the underlying trend would still suggest it's going lower, it may not be obvious for the next couple of months, which will put the Fed potentially in a tough spot in either December or January. The flip side is I think the market is expecting that. And if it turns out the inflation data is not so bad, that would further kind of reinforce, you know, things are maybe, you know, the, you know, the worst of this, uh, the past couple of months of, of overheating concerns is alleviated, but it really is feels like you can kind of go either way between now and let's say Agreed. kind of the January timeframe. Uh, Agreed. If we just you know, pivot from kind of, you know, this is the macro kind of outlook, you know, rates, you know, probably higher for at least a little while longer, like well into, into next year, you mentioned, you know, uh, avoiding maybe assets and companies that are, are more levered, more exposed to the refinancing costs. So, Jen, just from a you know, asset allocation perspective, and maybe starting on the fixed income side, uh, you know, what are kind of what are your you know your preferences, Apollo's preferences, both in the kind of public and also you know maybe you know private uh, fixed income markets? Yeah, so I would say that the, the broadest investment recommendation, really in this situation, is really to do what the Fed is doing. The Fed is telling investors we will be higher for longer. The consequence of that is that we should be cutting coupons in fixed income. And of course, the level of the base rate, uh, the Fed funds rate at five and a half, it does indeed look high by historical standards, but there are plenty of other opportunities, in, of course, including in private credit, where you can get a very nice spread on top of the um, uh, Fed funds rate and the money market rate. And there you can exactly go up in quality, go large cap. I would not recommend middle market or small cap because there's a lot of vulnerabilities. If there is a sharper slowdown coming, if there is a recession coming, then small cap companies are normally the first ones to go under. So large cap, senior secured, first lien, top of the capital structure, best protection you can get. And in particular, companies that already have cash flows, companies that are big, are those where you would like to get some nice returns now that interest rates are high. Because think about it, the dot plot from the Fed tells you that in a few years' time, the Fed funds rate, which today is five and a half, will be back, according to the Fed at two and a half. So that's why the window of opportunity for bond investors and for fixed income investors in terms of cutting coupons and getting returns is to invest and deploy capital now when the level of yield is at these incredibly high levels. Yes, it may go a bit higher. There's some discussion whether they will do another hike or not. But 
from a dollar cost averaging perspective, putting money to work when yield levels are high is, in my view, the best investment strategy. Or let me put this differently. Once we do get a bad print on non-farm payrolls, once we do get a bad print on retail sales and rates will come crashing down from the levels that they are at the moment, we will all be kicking ourselves that we didn't put money to work when yield levels were as juicy as they are today. So I, I would agree with a lot of that. You know, our kind of most preferred asset class is, is you know, bonds, high-quality bonds. Like, you know, that's been a message we've had for a number of months, high-quality bonds. Kind of tied to that is, you know, bar balance and fixed income. When the curve was so inverted and you could get, you know, 5 5.5% on cash and the 10-year was at, at 4%, like the, the question we would get, like, why would I want to sell, get out of cash and go into the long end of the curve? Now, when the difference is 20, 30 basis points, you don't give up very much. And in fact, you can lock in pretty attractive yields at like 5% or higher if you go into some of the other fixed income asset classes like, with a little bit of risk. And given they reinvent some risk, I'd rather sort of lock that in for 10 years as opposed to, you know, the possibility of refinancing a couple of years at, at, you know, much lower rates, which all of just kind of, kind of is an argument for me to think that, yeah, the, the concern to talk about the tenure going to like 6% or much higher, it feels like there'll be, well, investors have been maybe a little bit reluctant as the rates have gone higher to kind of step in and catch the falling knife, that there would be a pretty sizable demand from both retail, but also maybe institutional, if the tenure uh, you know, were to go much above 5%, especially if the curve were almost to kind of become you know, positively sloped again. Do you agree with that? Do you see like, or like what sort of risk, maybe to put another way, would you see of like, would like that the, the tenure could go much above, like, say, five and a quarter, five and a half percent. I agree with that. That I do think that when the Fed themselves are signaling as clearly as Jay Powell is this week, that we are very close to the peak in rates. He obviously talks primarily about short rates, but that also means that despite all these conversations about treasury supply in the long end, the term premium going up because Japan is exiting yield curve control and China is having fewer dollars to recycle. There's a lot of other arguments for why rates have reached these levels. But I still think that at the end of the day, the business cycle and the Fed will be dominating what's going on with rates. We may not get rates coming down to the very low levels we saw during the pandemic. Uh, but I do agree with your view that uh, we are getting to the point where the level of yields is at the moment probably the closest that we'll get to the highs during this cycle. And that's a different way of saying that's exactly why it's a time to begin to put money to work, in particular, of course, in higher yielding fixed income, because the returns you can get are just uh, incredibly high by historical standards, and therefore something that we all need to think hard about, uh, how much money uh, and how much of our portfolios do need to deploy at the moment to benefit from this very unique high level of yield that we have in markets uh, and in private markets in particular uh, as we speak. You know, we've talked almost exclusively about the U.S. economy, the Fed, uh, there are other parts of the world uh, that maybe don't look quite as good. I think, you know, Europe is at least technically might be in a recession, at least had slightly negative GDP growth. There's signs of China maybe getting a little bit better, but certainly nothing that uh, looks like kind of, you know, your gangbusters. So when you look at the, maybe the global, you know, economy overall, and given that it's a little bit asynchronous in terms of, you know, where the U.S. is accelerating, other parts of the world has, have slowed. How do you see the, maybe the global cycle and, and whether, whether it's starting with Europe or, or parts of emerging markets, do you see more slowdown? Is the slowdown kind of already played out and sort of things kind of reaccelerate? Like how does that, in your mind, sort of kind of that dynamic play and then the U.S. story being either exceptional or just a little bit slower to everyone else, you know, slowing down or at this point this year? Yeah, this is very important. So I still think that global growth is generally slowing down because central banks around the world 
are, generally speaking, fighting inflation just like the U.S. is. So if we start with China, China is slowing down for reasons that are really more structural but also cyclical for three reasons, namely they have some issues with exports have been slowing because global growth have been slowing. That's not good for the outlook for China. They have some challenges also with a deflating housing bubble that's also creating some challenges for the Chinese economy. And they finally also have some challenges with demographics still continuously as a structural problem, continuously weighing on growth. And when China slows down, that then has negative implications, in particular for the German economy. But the European economy more generally is indeed dependent on exports to China and therefore slowing growth in China is also having a negative impact and slowing growth down in Germany. On top of that, Europe has some other idiosyncratic problems that have energy transition, and Europe also have had some problems with labor productivity, and specifically because of wage unions dominating, uh, the, the wage negotiations and unions dominating wage bargaining. We also have wage inflation has been a bit higher in Europe than what we have in the U.S., and that's also creating some more rigidities in inflation, and therefore ultimately rigidities in the speed with which the ECB can begin to cut rates. So the short answer to your question, Jason, is that I worry quite a bit. Global growth, while the U.S. is slowing down, the rest of the world is also slowing down. And that does mean that it's not only the U.S. that's in this camp of fighting inflation and trying to slow the economy down. We're also seeing a slowdown that is actually sharper in Europe uh, for the reasons that I just mentioned. Uh, and therefore, that is showing up in the data in the form of weaker GDP, weaker CDW, weaker leading indicators. And ultimately, in Europe, we'll also see inflation begin to come down. But the, the bottom line and the short answer to your question is that growth is slowing globally, and the U.S. is not alone in the camp of trying to fight inflation. And we are just not there yet, really in any OECD country quite yet. We still have some more left in this battle to get inflation back to 2% in the OECD countries in particular. Well, I did my best to support the European economy this summer by traveling there for vacation, which probably cost about the same as going to Taylor Swift's concert. So I think I, I kind of broke even on that trade. <laughs> well, 30 uh, minutes good. goes very quick. I know, Torsten, Jason, there's a lot much else we can cover, though, as we begin to wrap up our time together for today. want to allow you both the opportunity to leave our listeners, our clients, with any final thoughts, takeaways. So, Jason, perhaps we can allow the final word to our guest, Torsten Slock. I'll ask you any final thoughts, takeaways you would like to leave with our listeners today? Look, this has been a year where the macro story and narrative has, has probably twist and turn at least a few different times. In uh, the past couple of months, I've been, a, you know, I'd say a little more pessimistic on the medium to longer term model, just because growth has been so strong, it's kind of created this fear that while well, good growth now is ultimately going to lead to worse conditions later because interest rates uh, have tightened and the Fed has to keep rates higher for longer. Uh, that is certainly a risk, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that narrative again flips, you know, potentially, you know, this year before year end or early next year where, uh, if we get a little bit kind of signs of cooling of the economy, signs of inflation, you know, kind of, you know, coming down. So the, that reacceleration fears are alleviated. And with the Fed being done, uh, you know, the, the soft landing camp, if you were, could sort of resume a little more dominance after, I think, in the past couple of months, there's been more concerns about, well, soft landing short term, but, you know, medium term, uh, hard landing. So this jostling back and forth in the, in the price action the past few days is kind of consistent with perhaps it's pivoting again. 
Um, and this is the dynamic we're in. It's kind of this, this tension between kind of you know, good data and higher rates and which one ultimately is kind of good for the markets. I think it's also going to you know, be continued to battle out for the rest of this year and early next year before there's a clear kind of winner one way or the other. So I think that the, the way that I think about what's going on at the moment, if I really zoom out and look at where markets are, is that during the pandemic in March and April of 2020, the window of opportunity for investors was really only three weeks. And then the Fed stepped in and everything reversed and things came rallying back. Now the shock is not a pandemic. Now the shock is inflation. So now instead the window of opportunity investors is not three weeks. It's actually more like three years. So there's a more dollar cost averaging perspective that now that inflation went up and we are getting it under control, it is coming down. The cost or the price or the way to do that is, of course, that interest rates and yield levels are unusually high by historical standards. So I think that investors should be looking at the current open window of opportunity and saying, well, if yield levels are where they are today and they are likely to normalize to lower levels over the coming years, then the conclusion must be that we should be deploying money, in my view, in particular in private credit, in asset classes where you can get some returns that give you a benefit from the level of yields being as high as it is at the moment. So in summary, from a very high helicopter perspective, it's about seeing this as an investment opportunity, as a window that has opened up. It's open now for quite some time, but nevertheless still gives some very unique opportunities for cutting coupons, for getting some cash flows in fixed income that we basically haven't seen for decades before this inflation episode came around. Well, Torsten, Jason, you've both been very generous with your time. I'm glad we were able to get together today to follow up on our conversation thoughts from earlier this year. Of course, a lot to look forward to in the year ahead. So, Torsten, hope you can join us again in 2024 to continue with the conversation, though. Thank you both again for joining us today on How Should I Be Positioned? You're welcome. Thank you. I look look forward to next time. Thanks again. Bye. And again, today we have been joined by Torsten Slock, partner and chief economist at Apollo, as well as Jason Dreho, head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS chief investment office. And from UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.